Hey, what is up, everybody? I hope your Thursday is going well today. Here, another storm is coming in. It's getting cloudy. It's getting cold. Nothing really surprises me anymore, though. That's kind of just how everything's been for the last like couple weeks. But wrapping my time up in the West Coast, only a couple more days here. Then I'm back to the Windy City, the city that's been freezing, the city that's dark and gloomy right now, but the city with good food, and that's Chicago. But yeah, I think I'll be back in the West Coast permanently fairly soon, if everything works out. So fingers crossed there. But anyways, I wanted to talk about our shameless buddy, George Santos, in a little bit. I also want to talk about Italy and COVID restrictions, and that can kind of lead us into the Italian right having some victories on immigration and potentially getting rid of a poverty relief program. And then I want to talk about uh, sudden Russian death syndrome, the random people falling out of buildings, and why it's meant to send a message. And I pretty much think that'll be it today. Maybe a little bit shorter episode today. We'll, we'll play it by ear. But I wanted to start and say... I was changing my address on the DMV as I am no longer a California resident, and I decided it was time to change my political party because technically I'm a registered Republican. I still was a registered Republican as of, I think, 2013, 2014, and I was going through that, and I'm like, do I still register as a Republican so I can vote in the primaries? Then I'm going, primaries are a crazy fest anyways like none of the primary candidates even appeal to me anymore because in the GOP to get through a primary these days unless you're in a purple district pretty much you have to be as crazy as you can be and so I was thinking about that and I'm like you know what I don't at all align with the Republican Party anymore Um, just between the crazies and the coup stuff and the lack of morals the cruelty uh, the conspiracies and just the misunderstanding of pretty much everything in our political system right now, I decided, oh, and also I I should just add that they're not really a conservative party anymore, not really a small government party anymore. They've become kind of a more authoritarian-sided party where they really do believe in influence, government regulation, as long as it's for them, right? And so I decided there's no reason I should register for this party. So as of yesterday, I am back to being a registered libertarian. And of course, I, I... A lot of people criticize libertarianism, maybe rightfully so, but what I would probably say about it, it's less of a political stance, like being a Democrat or a Republican, being a liberal or a conservative. A libertarian is more of kind of a lifestyle and more of a value system that guides you. So like you have like libertarian anarchists, you have right-leaning libertarians, you even have some left-leaning libertarians, like Governor Polis in uh, Colorado. And libertarian to me is more of just a lifestyle and an ideology that kind of goes kind of along with a value system more than anything. And so while I'm not always a libertarian, I think it's what most guides my values in terms of I prefer smaller government, individual rights, leaving things alone unless you need to intervene. And to me, there are things that need to be intervened with, such as healthcare. I think Ukraine is a rightful cause. And I think, I think a lot of people don't understand that there's quite a range of libertarians and what they believe. And so, yeah, I decided I would just go back to being that. That's what, I, that's what I was a long time ago. I kind of have danced all around the political spectrum, and it looks like I've kind of found myself back where I started, which is kind of ironic because you would think years of education and studying politics and a master's degree would have uh, changed my... Uh, opinions on these things, but it's kind of funny how sometimes we always end up back where we should be. 
So, yeah, and I, I think it's maybe it's just my nihilism towards our institutions and government and everything, but, yeah, I'm definitely a libertarian, maybe a left-leaning libertarian, but it's, uh, it's good to be back on that side. So I just wanted to start with that before we get going. But the first thing I, I do want to do now is talk about our buddy George Santos. And I just want to talk about his just remarkable shamelessness. Honestly, I was telling someone earlier, I think it's kind of impressive. I, I keep wondering how low the guy can go, and he keeps setting a new bar, and it's just really impressive. Apparently, there's some new revelations. I actually never mentioned this one, so I'll start with the other one, which isn't really that new, but it's something that I keep forgetting to say, so apologies. He always says that some of his staff members for his company died in, a, in the Pulse uh, nightclub shooting back in, what, 2016? That didn't happen. I mean, that's very troubling, I guess you could say. And the new one is that he has claimed that his mom died in 9-11. And from everything I'm seeing as of now, that is not looking to be true. And I just don't particularly know what this guy's end goal is because he he seems to just have created a person like i'm curious what this guy is actually like because practically everything's a lie and he still seems okay with it which is a whole other conversation to be had but so yeah he's he's pretty much created a, a caricature of himself or not even a caricature just a completely different person and also, he looks like he might actually have some issues going ahead. He is being investigated now because he, he used money from his own company in the campaign. But a lot of people are curious like where the money came from because he's lied about his jobs. So there's like a lot of like fraud questions involving there. And then also there's fraud questions about him lying to voters, lying to the taxpayers, because, as you know, when you're a congressman, the taxpayers have to pay your salary. And so I think there is a case of fraud that could be going forward about what is this guy doing? And now there's a whole other debate about whether anything will actually happen. But if this guy was smart, which he actually doesn't seem that smart, by the way. I've seen the interviews with him. Doesn't seem that smart. But anyways, if this guy was smart, he should resign. But anyways, I've also seen some interviews... And he was on Tulsi Gabbard's show, some Sky News thing with it was very soft. And he keeps just saying that, oh, I didn't lie. I just embellished my record. Kind of put some fine points on it. And I guess part of the reason why he claims to just added some uh, shiny pieces to his record is that he claims that he worked in customer service for a long time. But he says... If he put that on his resume, the woke New York Times and the woke mob would come after him because customer service isn't good enough or something. And so instead of being honest about his resume, he put Goldman Sachs. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's honestly just so insane that it's just kind of funny at this point. Like, I don't even know what else to say, but the fact that he's blaming the New York Times for writing a true article about something he actually did. It's insane. Like, he's totally gaslighting everybody. And it's actually kind of impressive how he's just doubling down on this. Like, this is definitely right out of the Trump playbook. And, I mean, on a side note, I wonder if all this is going to make him kind of a celebrity with the Trumpy base. Who knows? But I, I really liked the Tulsi Gabbard interview he did. She was filling in for Tucker Carlson, which, 
there's a lot of irony to that itself, just because former Democrat who claims to be enlightened now is on Tucker Carlson's show, which is one of the biggest grifts on TV, but we don't have time to get into that. Because in this case, she actually did a good job of like pushing back and asking good questions. And it really showed a guy who is not only condescending, but just out of touch, clueless, and just gaslighting everybody. I mean, she, for example, asked him about why he lied on his resume. And he says that some of the things he said are up for debate. She's like, really? They don't seem that up for debate. You did one thing and said a different thing. And... He then talks about how the American people wouldn't understand all the nuance on his resume. Tulsi's like, that sounds kind of condescending, sir, because, you know, a lot of people just see a guy who's lying, and he's like, well, it's above the heads of some of the people out there. It's like, honestly, maybe explaining his lies is too much for him. That's what it seems like for me, is that he can't really get around explaining these things, because this guy is not, just really not together by any means. So that's what I'm assuming. And then there was the part where she, she asked him, why did you claim to be part of the Jewish America coalition or whatever? And he's like, oh, I never said that. Apparently he did. There's like records of him saying that. But he then went in to say he's Jew-ish with a hyphen between Jew and ish. And it's kind of interesting because apparently he heard stories but even his origins, like he said, I grew up culturally Jewish, but then he'd also said that he grew up culturally Catholic. It's like this guy is just trying to play like identity politics bingo, but he actually doesn't have any of these things going for him. So it's all backfiring and I'm kind of here for it. I'm kind of here to just see this whole thing spiral out of control. I hate to say it. And I, I guess, I mean, you could say that everyone fluffs up their resumes a little bit. But this guy's definitely not just fluffing his resume. He's just completely lying. And I saw someone online say that Santos basically has made himself up. And I think that's the best way to put it. And I guess I've been thinking about why this guy lied and why he won the district. And, of course, he seems to be someone whose instinct is just to lie. Like, he has a reflex to lie. And that covers some of it. But I, I also think that he won in a swing district where people were kind of used to moderate candidates and they were complacent. And this, this you know, you have kind of left of center voters, but you have some Republicans in there as well. And part of me thinks that he won this because of, A, complacency, bad media coverage of it, and, and unwillingness to really look into his record. But also, I think a lot of more centrist kind of neoliberal moderate liberals are more likely to support someone who checks off their identity politics bingo card. And I don't know if Santos kind of did this on purpose or it just happened that way, but by saying he was a working class immigrant, gay, Jewish, Brazilian, so makes him, you know, from the Hispanic part of the world, it, it gets to a point where you're like, all right, dude, like you're, you're clearly just trying to appeal to everything here. And of course, he does seem to be gay, so that part does seem true, but the other stuff just seems like a fabrication, and I think he was just trying to appeal to voters that are supportive of identity politics and usually vote with someone more in that realm, and this, of course, is just my theory, but if it's true, I think his victory would just show how far 
our societal and political rot has gone when all these identity things are appealing to people. Because instead of, like, I'm a meritocracy type of guy, and I think if we had a better meritocracy, maybe you wouldn't have a guy fabricating his whole record just to appeal to a certain box. You know what I mean? And there's a good article in The Atlantic from last night. I believe it was last night, and it's called How a Perfectly Normal New York Suburb Elected a Con Man. And it's by Steve Israel, who, from my understanding, is actually a former congressman who served in that district from 2001 to 2017. And what I mean is the district that Santos just won. And in the article, Israel writes, Democratic complacency, Republican extremism, and media decline helped George Santos take over my old congressional district. And I think all of these seem to check out and make sense in a lot of our political issues. For example, like... Israel discusses the makeup of the district, saying that, in quotes, the district is as normal as Santos' is extreme. It's a place of strip malls and nail salons, good pizza and chain, re- chain restaurants, white picket fences and PTA meetings. So a pretty normal place. He continues, in quotes, in every poll, in every election I ran in, voters were left of center on socialist issues, right of center on taxes, and concerned about preserving their quality of life. They hovered quietly near the center, and they were more likely to watch the local news to check weather and traffic than to be glued to Fox News or MSNBC. And I think an interesting part of the article, and it kind of alludes to this, is that Israel says that a lot of these voters were apathetic, right? They're people that would rather watch the local weather and deal with the PTA meetings and just the life and maintaining the status quo. And maybe they weren't as in tune to the national dynamics or the craziness that was coming. And maybe that led to some of the stuff we're seeing here. He says, in, he says that when Israel was a congressman, that he held town meetings and usually they were empty. And no one really came to these meetings, even though his staff tried to get people out there. And it seems to me that Israel is convinced that voters were just not prepared for Santos to come along because it hadn't happened before. He writes later in the article, Voter disconnection must be part of the explanation for why Santos won. Voters in New York 3 say they value integrity and honesty, and I believe they do. But they weren't on the lookout for a huckster politician. They didn't think that could happen here because it hadn't before. And And I think it's also important to note that Biden won, like this is where we get into the complacency part, which is also just kind of infuriating now. Biden won the district by 10 points. Close to 10 points. I think it was actually over 10 points. And I think a lot of people, a lot of strategists, a lot of people in the DNC, and a lot of people involved in the election viewed the district as a safe bet for Democrats. And I think that's kind of a story in New York in general because Republicans did pretty well in New York. And it's interesting because Zimmerman, one of the Democrats who ran against Santos, actually received some red flags when his team and Democrat strategists did research on Santos. But this is where it gets even more infuriating because apparently they thought Santos was not going to win. And I guess you would think so if you're complacent and you saw the Biden numbers. So they decided to not really dig into it and make it a story. And this is kind of, I I bet they're punching themselves now about that. But anyways, there was also the failure by the media to do anything about this. As I've talked about on previous podcasts, uh, local local news and local media is just being gutted, and they just don't have the resources probably to dive into these type of stories. And so you have people that maybe see red flags not reporting anything, and the media really not having the resources to do anything. And that gets you to a point where, 
a guy like Santos kind of slips under the rug. And clearly Democrats didn't understand that voters in New York wanted change. And you get an a-hole like this guy. And, I mean, of course you can blame Democrats, complacency, flawed candidates. But I should also note that the Republicans definitely deserve blame here because Israel writes towards the end of the, the article in The Atlantic, he discusses in quotes here, Republicans accepted Santos's narrative without due, without due diligence because they prioritized extreme ideology over actual qualifications. And this is something I didn't actually know until today, but it kind of fits into this. But Santos is much more extreme than you would think because the picture he paints of a Jewish immigrant who's gay and, you know, went to Goldman Sachs and NYU and whatever else, he's, he kind of comes off as maybe someone who's a moderate Republican. But then I looked into him. <laughs> he was at the Ellipse on January 6th. He seems to be somewhat of an election denier. And he's even bragged about helping pay the legal fees of some of the insurrectionists. And this guy is quite extreme. And even though he doesn't look or sound like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lowen Boebert, he is another radical Republican, repugnant radical Republican, who is part of this same squad of nutbags. And to me, he's attacking democratic norms in kind of a new and dangerous way. And the fact that he's doubling down and seems kind of smooth, albeit stupid, is interesting. And before we move on, I just have to add that there is so much just uncertainty about what will happen for him. Like I alluded to earlier, part of me worries he's going to become a celebrity because he kind of has this double down, I don't give a fuck type of attitude. But then also like the people that are running some of these investigations against him are Republicans up in New York. So that does make me feel a little bit better as well. And of course, you have Democrats that are just screaming about this. I saw, I saw on the Hill this morning, in quotes, members of the Congressional LGBTQ plus Equality Caucus are joining calls for Republican, or sorry, Representative-elect George Santos to resign, demanding the newly elected congressman take accountability for misrepresenting key elements of his background. But again, like I said, these are Democrats. But good news is I did read, and I mentioned this at the top of the show a little bit, there is a federal investigation being opened into his finances. CNN reports that, in quotes, the news of the probe being undertaken by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York comes as the Republican has admitted to lying about key parts of his biography. Santos has faced questions over his wealth and loans totaling more than $700,000, and he made these to his successful 2022 campaign. That is interesting to see where that money came from. I also do think it's interesting if they keep pursuing this argument that like he is defrauding the American people who are the taxpayers paying for him because he got a job based on false pretext, and what are they going to do about that? Now, of course, and this is really going to surprise you guys, not Kevin McCarthy has been silent. He's really good at being silent. As... Like, I'm just truly curious, I guess, about how the GOP is going to handle this. Probably not much, because they need the votes, and they care about winning more than anything else. Like, I've talked about that before, is like, as long as Trump wins, they're fine with him. It's only when Trump starts losing that they have issues. And this is not a party that cares about truth or decency or integrity, as long as they get seats. So, who knows? And I... I think there's another issue about if DeSantos, sorry, 
if Santos, there's a little Freudian slip there, if Santos ends up in Congress is I, I do wonder how this guy can be trusted and able to work with others because everything's a lie and I wonder what that does to your reputation. Like, will anyone trust you in Congress? How can he work with people across the aisle? Will voters even want to trust him? I mean, I've seen protests, a lot of people not in his district, but a lot of protests. And if you're trying to pass a bill, are you going to believe the guy who's fabricated his entire existence? To me, this guy to me, this guy seems like somewhat of a liability at this point. Again, Kevin McCarthy is thick, and I don't think he maybe can see the forest through the trees on this. But protecting this guy might not be worth it in the long run. Maybe this will show my age. I mean, I guess I'm still young, but it might show my age. Every time I look at Santos now, I just think of the song Low by Flo Rida. You know, apple bottom jeans, jeans, boots with the fur. Shorty guy, low, 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 low. He seems like he is just <clears throat> racing to the bottom on how low he can be. So I'm here for it. Moving on, I want to talk about Italy again for a moment. There's actually some good news, and then we'll get into the more troubling news in Italy, or at least some signs of there being potential chaos there. Yesterday, I mentioned that Italy became the first European country to introduce a mandatory virus testing for people of, uh, arriving from China. Of course, there's questions about how effective this can be, because if you're asymptomatic, sometimes you get false negatives, yada, yada, yada. We're not going to get into that again, but... The Italian government is urging other EU members to basically do the same, and that is not the good news, but that is what's happening. And the good news, though, is that according to Politico, there is no sign of new COVID-19 variants among the passengers arriving in Italy from China. And the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, said basically during a press conference in Rome that pretty much everyone who was tested excuse me, everyone that was tested only had the Omicron variant. And so that's good news. But she's calling for a huge EU-wide testing regime to guard against the threat of the virus again. And the EU is a little bit slow to do it. Now, it's actually interesting because she's a pretty far-right politician, kind of a Mussolini fan. And so if someone like her in the United States would be very against this, and it's kind of interesting that she actually is taking quite a strong stance in testing and COVID restrictions because, as we know, the American right is pretty much in denial about it. But while it's good news that we haven't seen a variant so far, which is kind of the main thing I, I'm happy about to see because I think with all the amount of cases you have in China, there's fears that that would really happen. I did read, though, and this is kind of crazy, is that according to officials in Milan, Milano, Nearly half of the passengers arriving from China to Milan have COVID. So first off, I would not want to be in that airport right now, which is ironic because I was actually in that airport three times in September. Glad I'm not there now. And I guess it makes sense because you have just the virus going rampant and people want to get out of China and see their families and travel because they've pretty much been locked down there for over two years now. And... It is interesting because the, the Italian government is calling for a COVID regime to limit spread from China. It seems like, though, the rest of the EU is hesitant. I don't know if that's because they want tourism or they just don't think it works. I'm going to guess it's a little bit of both, but it does seem like they don't really think these type of restrictions work. But The Guardian says here in quotes, officials in Berlin, Paris, and Brussels were more cautious over sounding the alarm over the latest developments in China. And... 
I think it would be smart probably to do this, but at the same time, one could understand because, like I said at the top of this segment, testing isn't always as reliable as people hope. Maybe, though, and I think it was David Pakman on his podcast who said this, is that he said maybe this will deter people from traveling if they're sick because they don't want to go through the chaos of it. I know when I was traveling in Italy and Spain and I saw that there were testing requirements, even though they actually never tested me, it did make me go, God, if I have COVID, I got to stay home because I don't want to get somehow suspended in an airport somewhere, you know. So there's that. Maybe it's just deterrence. But it is just interesting to see that this right-leaning government is not actually in denial about this and is actually trying to do something. Like, Giorgia Maloney, the prime minister in Italy, kind of surprises me because she's not as bad as I thought she would be. I was kind of wrong at the beginning. Time will tell. And in the next segment, I'll say some of the things maybe I don't think are good about her, but she's fascinating. And I guess Italy's maybe reacting like this because I remember when I was locked down in Spain, we pretty much followed what Italy was doing because Spain and Italy had some of the worst outbreaks at the beginning of the pandemic and Italy had those really strict lockdowns travel restrictions there were talks about people you know filling ice skating rinks with bodies and just people like not leaving their houses and seeing someone die in their house I mean it was it was very bad so maybe it's the traumatized nature of the pandemic that has them reacting like this I don't know but still I will just say good news that we haven't seen another variant yet because I was half expecting that to be the case Now, moving on, I want to talk about some internal dynamics in Italy for a moment because I've been kind of following Georgina Maloney's, sorry, Georgia Maloney's right-wing government. A lot of people said, I mean, even The Economist, who I trust, I want to read a segment here from The Economist to start. It says, her government is seriously constrained. And then let me get it here. It says, yeah, at first glance, Italy's new government has all the requirements for a short life. The brothers, the Northern League, and Silvio Bersoloni's Forza Italia party openly disagree on a range of issues, from Russia to budgetary policy. But their coalition's outright majority is the first since Mr. Berlusconi's landslide victory in 2001. If Miss Maloney can emulate this, then sooner or later she may feel sufficiently free of constraints to ditch her pragmatism and and experiment with the kinds of policies foreshadowed in those fiery speeches. And I think this is kind of interesting because right now she is actually coming off as a pragmatic leader in some sense. Like, she's not my leader and someone I would vote for or support, but she's seeming a lot more tame than I think a lot of people were thinking. And she has had speeches where she's really sounded more like Viktor Orban in the past than a leader of a very diverse political situation. But now I think she's had to grapple with things. Like she met with Zelensky and talked about aid. She has obviously been quite strict with COVID restrictions in China. Like right now, in my opinion, she is just really trying to not piss anyone off. And that means also not pissing off moderates. But I think that Economist article has a good point where maybe if she maintains power long enough, she can start doing some of the things that she claims to want to do. Again, I could be wrong, but what has been interesting is that Italy's been in kind of a row with the EU for a while now, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that pulls out. But Italy has actually approved a budget for next year, the Italian Senate has, and this was the first for Georgia Maloney's government. And to basically ensure that it passed, her cabinet made the crucial vote of confidence in the government, 
And the budget provides about 20 billion euros, from my understanding. That's probably about 22, 23 billion dollars. And they're trying to just offset the effects of the energy crisis, which, by the way, I saw prices are going down in Europe. That's some good news that I was going to talk about, but didn't have time to really dive into that. But prices are actually starting to offset in Europe again, which is good. And her government basically has a huge package that's looking to make life easier for the average Italian, which I think is a good thing. Again, she's ruling more pragmatically than I think a lot of people were talking about. Now, the controversial part, though, is that she's a big austerity program type of person. And this budget that they've approved, (laughs) while they're putting money to offset energy costs, which is a big thing on the American right as well as the European right, they are taking money out of Italy's main poverty relief scheme that helps a lot of people. And... I mean, I should note that Italian bureaucracy, especially in the South, is very inefficient at this time. And this poverty program has been useful. And a lot of people are worried that even though right now they're gutting it, the goal is to just get rid of it. And the EU is not happy about this. And I do think she's going to piss off some parties about this. So, I mean, while she's done some good things, that's not probably the best news. And with inefficient bureaucracy, seeing this happen... Fingers can only be crossed. And at the same time, Italy's right-wing government under Georgia Maloney has approved measures that are going to look to fine NGOs that rescue migrants at sea. And basically, from what I'm understanding, impound their ships if they break these tougher sets of rules. And I believe this decree was not part of the budget or any of that, but it was approved late on Wednesday. Reuters says here, These ships should request a port and sail to it without delay after a rescue rather than remain at sea looking for other uh, migrant boats in distress. So basically, you can't go around looking to help migrants, looking to help immigrants. And, I mean, this is a big issue because all you have to do is look at Italy on a map and say, like, okay, you have, like, North Africa right below you, then you have Malta, and then you have Sicily right there, and then you have southern Italy. And... They have gotten a lot of immigrants. It's been a key talking point for a lot of the Italian right. And I'm no open borders person. I understand why this would be an issue when you're getting such an influx. So I can understand it, no doubt. But I don't know if punishing NGOs is the best way to do it because there's a good Reuters article that discusses how the majority of migrants don't even get protected from from NGOs, like it's usually third parties or just like random vessels. Like it's not really NGOs that are doing the most of this. So they're trying to make a point, but I don't know if it's really an effective way to do it. But to put put the numbers into perspective here, almost 104,000 migrants have disembarked in Italy so far in 2022. So almost to the end of 2022. So about 104,000. And the uh, Interior Ministry also says that this is a lot compared with about 67,000 in the same year, last year, 34,000 in 2020, and I guess the worst was in 2016 with 181,000. So it's not good, and immigration in the EU has been a source of tensions for years, and it's understandable why places like Spain and Italy have these far-right parties that are very anti-immigration, but... To me, this more shows that we're seeing economic crises throughout North Africa and the Middle East that are causing this, and we're going to need to get a a cap on this or at least some sort of consensus on how to deal with this before it's too late. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what Italy's government does, though, because 
Maloney right now wants to work with Ukraine, which is good. But you know there's people in her party that are Putin adjacent. You know that she has these budget deals, but over time, is that going to work? Also, she's kind of anti-EU working with them right now. It will be interesting to see if she can survive some of this. Now, lastly, I want to move back to Russia, where I guess we've been spending a lot of time lately, which ironic, which is kind of ironic because in a perfect world, I really would not want to be anywhere close to Russia right now. But I wanted to talk about this ridiculous but ever-present phenomenon in Putin's Russia. And it's something that's happened to officials that generally, officials and elites and powerful figures, actually. But it's happened to people that criticize Russia's vaccine, the invasion of Ukraine, Putin in general, elections, anything about the Kremlin. And what I'm talking about is basically oligarchs and Russian elites falling out of windows or leaving suicide notes after they criticize the Kremlin. And The Atlantic has a great opening to an article on this, and I'll read that out. It's from Elaine Godfrey, and she writes, Here is a list of people you should not currently want to be. A Russian sausage tycoon, a Russian gas industry executive, the editor-in-chief of a Russian tabloid, a Russian shipyard director, the head of a Russian ski resort, a Russian aviation official, or a Russian rail magnate. Anyone answering to such a description probably ought not stand near open windows in almost any country or on almost every continent. continent sorry. And the reason I talk about this is because even since the COVID pandemic when the Sputnik vaccine wasn't that great, we were hearing about Russian officials falling out of windows. And the reason I talk about this too is that a Russian sausage tycoon, which by the way, I love sausages, so poor guy, he's one of the recent guys who randomly fell out of a window. An article discusses Pavel Antov, the aforementioned sausage executive, a man who has reportedly expressed a dangerous lack of enthusiasm for Putin's war against Ukraine, was found dead at a hotel in India just two days after one of his Russian travel companions died at the same hotel. Convenient, by the way. The article continues, Antov was reported to have fallen to his death from a hotel window. The Meat Millionaire, which by the way, that is a badass name. I wish I was the Meat Millionaire. But anyways, the Meat Millionaire and his also deceased friend are the most recent additions to a macabre list of people who have succumbed to sudden Russian death syndrome, a phenomenon that has claimed the lives of a flabbergastingly large amount of businessmen, bureaucrats, oligarchs, and journalists. Journalists, sorry. And of course, not everyone has died from falling. There have been suicide notes, bodies floating in rivers, and more. However, it just always happens to someone who is either not loud and proud about the regime or they fell out of favor with Putin. And, you know, yesterday I was talking about Dmitry Medvedev and why all these Russians seem so just vocally in support of the war all of a sudden. Well, maybe it's because they don't want to fall out of a window. I don't want to fall out of a window, but, you know... Maybe that's why all of a sudden you see all these guys who are moderates being so loud and proud to Putin. And I think some people do ask, and I think they're missing the point. Some people ask why these people seem to fall out of the windows at such a high rate. They ask, doesn't it seem obvious? Like, shouldn't, couldn't they do something more discreet, like poisoning? Or, or the, you know, drowning in a river? But to me, I think it's actually the obviousness of the falling out of the window is kind of the point right? Putin wants to make it clear. He wants to send a message. Basically, he, he wants people to know that if you're against the regime, you fall. Like, I, I'm reading that book on fascism, and it was kind of the same. as like when the fascist regime wanted to make a point, they did either public killings, 
some sort of public punishment, or they made it known that they were sending you to Dachau or one of these other concentration camps. And to me, it seems the same here is there's a business of assassination. It's like the purpose is to send messages to others, like we'll kill you and your family if you're disloyal. And the goal is to simply just tell someone that, yes, you will fall from a window. So even though we're from the outside going, huh, that's weird. It's to send a message to people on the inside. You saw that meat magnet, the meat millionaire die, you might be next. So a lot of fun things happening in Russia right now. Thank God that we won the lottery and are not there right now. So anyways, I want you guys to have a great rest of your Thursday. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, YouTube, whatever else there is. Avita Zane, we'll see you later.